Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Report, a new news show hosted by myself on Elections Daily. Uh, today, we uh, the uh, report is designed to provide unbiased and objective news to all people watching it. It's different from Elections Weekly, which provides commentary and our election coverage where we're simply covering the races. Well, we are going to talk about elections today. Uh, this also covers other news, both pertaining to elections and the country as a whole. So, uh, yes, we're happy to be here today uh, on the report, and uh, we're going to start with our first segment talking about race ratings because we had those changes today. We had a plethora of race ratings changes on the presidential level, the Senate level, and of course the House level. So those ratings are going to be um, coming in today, and we're going to have our first guest, Eric Cunningham, to talk about the presidential ratings changes that he made today uh, to our presidential map. So welcome to Eric Cunningham. Hey, happy to be here. Hi, Eric. Can you just talk a little bit about your changes you made today on the presidential level? Oh, yeah. Here. There we go. Yeah. Well, we uh, there's been a lot of changes in the past week or a couple of weeks. We hadn't anticipated there would be this much churn over over just a couple of weeks. We thought we could go maybe a month between making changes, but it's become kind of apparent that there's been a lot of stuff that's been going on that really needed to be covered. So that's why we did these mid-month changes and have shifted to a, a bi-weekly focus on them. Um, so I made 12 changes to the presidential ratings today, which is a lot. Uh, most of the, all of the reports the Democratic Party. So this is pretty much um, not a whole lot of positive here if you're um, if you're the Republicans looking at it, but this is kind of the, the lowest point of the, of the in terms of polling. So makes sense. Um, the first two are probably ones that we kind of probably should have done a while ago, moving Colorado and Virginia from likely Democratic to safe Democratic. Yeah. Uh, for a while, those have been kind of put into likely Democratic because the idea was they could at least be close. Um, but the problem is there's been states that are far, uh, far less competitive that in theory, like New Mexico, that we have listed it at safe Democratic. And it's apparent that these are very similar to that. Um, Republicans aren't even spending money in either of these states at this point. And um, both of them have double-digit or even nearing 20-point polling margins for mm -hmm. the Democratic Party. So at the moment, given Republicans aren't even bothering to spend here, uh, we felt it was uh, it made sense to move those to safe Democratic. Um, we've also moved a couple of the Rust Belt states. Um, so we moved Michigan to likely Democratic. This matches our Senate race. Um, the thought was, I guess, for a while that um, 
you know, Trump's win in Michigan was a surprise. And it's definitely worth considering the possibility that there might be some sort of polling errors. But the margins and polls in Michigan are so consistent at this point that it's hard to justify keeping it at a lean Democratic rating. Um, it'd be very difficult for Trump to win Michigan, not impossible. Um, but this does match our Senate race where Gary, uh, where Gary Peters is being outraised by a Republican who's probably not going to win that race either. Um, we also moved Pennsylvania and Wisconsin from toss-up to lean Democratic. Um, both of these states have seen uh, polling margins that have been consistently Democratic of between 5 to 10 percentage points, um, and this has been going on for a while. Um, this, these changes alone move uh, Joe Biden to 600, or, sorry, 278 electoral votes. So in our ratings at the moment, uh, Biden, if this would go on right now, uh, the assumption would be that Biden would win the presidential race based on those changes alone. Um, those are actually kind of the least interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll let Harrison kind of explain. I just have a, uh, a quick question for you since you're in charge of our presidential ratings mm -hmm. team. Uh, in terms of Arizona, there's been a big push to move Arizona to leans Democratic at this point because of mm -hmm. um, increasingly positive trends for Democrats in the Sun Belt. As you know, Kirsten Cinema mm -hmm. defeated Martha McSally to flip Jeff Flake's Senate seat last year or two years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, Martha McSally is vulnerable in her Senate race against Mark Kelly this year. So uh, do you think there's a possibility that it would move to lean Democratic? And how do you justify some of these other rating changes towards the Democrats, but uh, not in Arizona? Oh, definitely. Um, it's very possible that Arizona shifts that way, right? Um, obviously, we have the Senate race rated at the moment as likely Democratic, I believe. Um, and this is because Mark Kelly is uniquely positioned very well against um, Martha McSally. He's fundraising a ton of money. And on top of that, he's also polling uh, by double digits in a lot of polls. Um, in, other, in other ones, state polls have been more competitive, right? Um, the state polling um, for Trump has been a little bit less so. But there's also the fact that um, if you kind of look at these, um, if, I mean, basically Arizona is a state that we anticipate to vote to the right of Wisconsin, right? It voted to the right of Wisconsin um, last time, and we anticipate it to do the same this time. The question is whether or not Trump carries it. Um I envision Arizona as kind of maybe a tipping point state, but maybe a tipping point state in the sense that it's something Biden uh, could win to get over. I don't think it's going to be the center state right now, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. It's a difficult state for Democrats to win, even even though they, they're gaining in these um, urban areas. It is a state that has voted Republican for a very long time, and polling was very favorable to Democrats in 2016 in that state to some degree. Uh, and it was able to be overcome towards the end. So that's just kind of what I put. It's on the verge. It's, it's very, very close to lean Democratic at this point. But I do feel it is a little bit to the right of Wisconsin, um, which is why if we use tilts, it would be a tilt, but we don't use tilts. Um, and I'm, that's a decision on my part and on the part of our team. Um, but if you want to envision it that way, yeah, that would be kind of how I look at that state. And some other analysis of your presidential change is uh... – can you just ex go over briefly uh, the justification for moving four typically red states to the um, likely Republican column? And just to note to our viewers, likely Republican still means that the president is heavily favored to win those states. But uh, mm -hmm. Missouri and Montana have not been particularly competitive since uh, the 2008 presidential election. Mm -hmm. uh, Utah, obviously, you had that variable in 2016 with Evan McMullen, and you have Mormon discontent with Trump this time around. Mm -hmm. um, and then Alaska, we had that public policy poll that was commissioned by election Twitter that showed a close race there. But Alaska actually hasn't voted Democratic in a presidential race since 1964. 
and it hasn't been competitive in a very, very long time. So um, can you just uh, explain why President Trump is uh, gradually falling in states like that that should be easy lockups for his campaign? And what does that mean for his reelection as a whole? Sure, absolutely. So uh, what I looked for in moving some of these states is that we have several states as likely Democratic that would like that would almost certainly vote for the Democratic candidate, right? Um, that's what a likely rating means. But it is possible they could flip in in an election certain scenarios. Uh, right now, polling indicates Donald Trump is behind by anywhere from ten to fifteen percentage points. Um, some have him a little bit more, like eight. Have you know Joe Biden being up by eight? But at the moment, 15 percentage points is a very big margin, and that means that takes you all the way up to Maine's second congressional district in terms of what states flip. Um, that's why we've moved a lot of those states like Georgia and Texas, where there have been polling consistently showing a competitive race to toss up. Um, the reason we moved those four states in particular, Alaska, Montana, Missouri, and Utah, is they are the states closest to that 15-point margin that I feel will be the most probable to be a surprise race. Um, there's other ones that are nearby, right? There's South Carolina, there's Mississippi. Um, there are a few other states like that that voted for Trump by between 15 to 21 percentage points that could theoretically be affected by a uniform national shift. But a uniform national shift isn't really a thing. Uh, some states are affected more than others. Elasticity is a factor. And South Carolina and, and Mississippi aren't particularly elastic states. Um, they've, I mean, they'd be more difficult to win than a state like Alaska, which is very elastic or a state like Utah, but Montana and Missouri are also very elastic states. Uh, Montana uh, almost voted for Barack Obama in 2008. It also has a noticeable snapback factor where incumbent candidates tend to do worse in Montana when running for reelection than they do during the first term. That's one factor there. There's also a competitive poll showing the race is competitive there. Missouri mm -hmm. is probably the trickiest one. But I think there are some reasons Democrats could look at it as a potential swing state, right? It's very similar to Montana. It was one of the states that Barack Obama narrowly missed carrying in 2008. He ran very, very close in Missouri. Um, and the right candidate has been shown in the last two presidential cycles can win uh, Missouri. In 2012, obviously, you had uh, a Democratic governor win re-election, and you had Claire McCaskill uh, win re-election by a pretty considerable margin. And then in 2016, you had Democrats put up very strong races while Trump was resoundingly winning the state. They almost won the governor's office and a Senate race. Um, so it's shown they can at least come close in presidential years, even in 2016. Um, that's kind of a factor I'm looking at. There's also a more suburban factor there, right? You have the Kansas City area, and then you have the St. Louis area. Both of those are very large. And a Democrat doesn't need to, to win a whole lot more than those areas to, to be competitive if the margins are big enough. Um, that's kind of what I looked at. Those other states that are nearby would be, uh, I, I know, I think Crystal Ball moved South Carolina to likely Republican in, in Indiana. Um, but I chose not to move those because I don't feel they are mm -hmm. quite as competitive right now. It, they're harder they're harder states to do, for example, with Mike Pence being yeah. from Indiana. I mean, if you remember in 2008, uh, former President Obama carried Indiana, but he, even then in that massive blue wave, he still could not win Missouri. He narrowly lost it to a... Mm -hmm. uh, Senator McCain. And, and you know, Missouri is going to be a tough state. I mean, obviously, the likely rating still accurately indicates that Trump is heavily favored to win it. And it certainly has become more red over time. Uh, a lot like Indiana, Obama just couldn't make ground there in 2012 against Mitt Romney, even though he had contested the state back in 2008. 
And uh, obviously, Claire McCaskill had a special case in 2012 because Todd Aiken was a pretty poor opponent, and Poles actually had Aiken ahead of McCaskill that cycle before Aiken made the legitimate rape comment. And um, in 2018, obviously, McCaskill lost to Josh Hawley. So it's definitely a state, in my opinion, that's not going towards the direction of the Democrats. But I see what you're saying, looking at it historically. Uh, you know, there are nuances like uh, Missouri's second district in the St. Louis suburbs could trend towards the Democrats. And that's why there's a toss up house race there between Ann Wagner and Jill Shupp. And the the final question I have for you about uh, your ratings is actually a an interesting uh, point to make because we were talking about Missouri. And for almost a whole century, Missouri was a pretty strong bellwether state. It only it voted for the winner in every presidential race except 1956 for almost a century. Uh, pretty much up until 2008 when that trend was broken. So uh, another state that's done that is Ohio. And uh, a Republican president has never been elected without winning Ohio. As you know, Ohio was the big swing in the 2004 election that uh, narrowly reelected President Bush over Senator John Kerry. Uh, and Ohio was right in 2016. But is there a chance that Ohio could be wrong this time? I mean, if Ohio, there has to, I mean, looking at the way Ohio is trending long term towards the Republicans, at least in a lot of areas of the state that were historically democratic, like on the Appalachian side and the eastern border along Pennsylvania and West Virginia. If you look at that, is there a chance that Ohio, referencing Kyle Condick's book, may not pick the president in the future and that it may start voting for Republicans like Missouri, even as Democrats win the country as a whole? What's your opinion on that and your toss-up rating in Ohio this cycle? Mm -hmm. Definitely. So, um, so if you look at Ohio... Um, so if you look at Ohio the way it is right now, right, it's actually kind of similar to Missouri. Um, so you have Cincinnati, you have Columbus, and you have Cleveland. Those are kind of the Democratic anchors of the state. You also have Toledo, obviously, which is an area where Democrats have historically done pretty well in. Um, but that area is, of course, trending Republican at the moment. Um, Republicans have an advantage there because of an overwhelming majority in the rural areas, similar to Missouri, where they utterly dominate. Um, the difference, I think, is that Ohio only voted for Donald Trump. I believe it gave him 51 to 52 percent of the vote. Um, a lot of that margin was because Hillary Clinton finished with low 40s in, in the polling, which is why a state like that could become a little bit more competitive this time. If it was a 59 to, to 49 win, that'd be a little bit trickier to come back from. Um, yeah. So part of part of the factor we're looking at is obviously if, if Joe Biden is up by 15 points, um, Trump only won Ohio by high single digits. So it's very likely that the state is competitive, even if you don't look at polling, which shows a competitive race. Long term, I think Democrats do have a little bit of hope in Ohio. Um, there's always the possibility that Cincinnati becomes bluer. Uh, this is That's a historically Republican area, um, and it's become more Democratic as of late. There's also some hope, for example, in some of the, the Columbus suburbs, some of the suburban counties around it. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely possible, right? States don't remain swing states forever. Um, a lot of them are competitive until they aren't. I think Nevada is a state that's trending similarly to Ohio, except in the other direction. It was a very, it was a very reliable bellwether. Um, it only missed in 1976 from 1912 on. It missed only once. But now it's generally a state that's seen as likely democratic. It's not a state yeah. that would be deciding an election. Um, the question is what what the new swing states will be in the future, and I think those are states like Arizona, Wisconsin. Um, where there are sizable areas for bases of both parties, rather than mm -hmm. a shifting coalition, um, as we've seen in Ohio, that's kind of stabilized. Republicans used to do really well in Cincinnati, and Democrats used to dominate in northeastern Ohio, and those edges yeah. kind of evaporated. 
Yeah, I mean, you've got continuing swing states like Florida, and then obviously mm-hmm. now it looks like Texas over time is becoming a swing state. I mean, we moved it to mm-hmm. a toss. I thought that was your decision. Can you briefly touch on that and why you moved Texas uh, to a toss-up? Many view it as still a lean Republican state, but I think you view it in a similar light to Georgia. Mm-hmm. So part of the... I did this with with great reluctance, but I did this after looking at the polls and after consulting people who know the area. Um, I have a I have a source who has a pretty reliable um, model, which indicates a competitive race. At the moment, I don't think anyone can say Texas isn't competitive. Um, Texas right now is a difficult state for Democrats to win, primarily because of that large rural contingent. But also, um, it's just it's just a very it's a state you wouldn't expect Trump to do very well in. It's a state with a lot of immigrant voters, a lot of Hispanic voters, and Donald Trump obviously is very well known for his uh, immigrant positions. It's a state that relies heavily on trade, and it's very impacted by decisions Trump makes with trade. Uh, it's a state where Republican coalition is based off the suburbs, and Trump is doing very poorly in the suburbs. So it's kind of uniquely positioned to be um, less less you know Republican under Trump. Um, the mm-hmm. warning signs are there from internals. Uh, Texas Republicans are concerned. Not not just my source in particular, but also Senate people like Ted Cruz. Internal Republicans are very concerned with what's going on there. Um, and that's why I moved it to that race. If um, Obviously, if, if this was not a Biden plus 15 situation, it might not be that sort of thing. But combined with the internal the, the polling I've seen from there, um, with the, just the trends that I've examined in the map room, looking at Houston, looking at Dallas – um, I think there is a viable democratic path to victory in Texas in certain situations. And it's the same thing with Georgia, although Georgia is a little bit different because it's, um, relies heavily on a single metropolitan area, whereas Texas is notable for being a sprawling state with a wide number of metropolitan areas you have to compete in. Yeah. And, uh, before we move on to segment two about coronavirus and an update on schools reopening in the fall, I'm just going to talk about our house ratings cause I'm in charge of that at elections daily. So, uh, uh, we made quite a few house ratings changes, and I'm looking at the article we wrote up now, and I promised the viewers that I would talk about my ratings changes on this uh, stream. So I'm going to focus on some of the big things uh, that we changed. First off, New Jersey's third district, uh, Andy Kim. That district is uh, includes Ocean and Burlington counties, so that's part of the Trenton and Philadelphia suburbs coupled with some more conservative shore areas in Ocean County. It's a Republican district, voted for Trump by six points in 2016. Uh, Kim has a strong constituent service record, and he is a very strong fundraiser. He has $4.2 million of cash on hand. He's facing David Richter, and although both he and Kate Gibbs, the two primary contenders, were conservative, uh, Richter is seen as uh, the more controversial of the two, and in my personal opinion, I don't really view him as a particularly strong candidate. He does have uh, his connections to Hill International, one of the nation's largest construction companies, so his stock provides him an ability to self-fund, but at this point, uh, a lot like New Jersey's 5th District, where we move Josh Gottheimer's race to safe Democratic against Frank Pallotta. Uh, you just can't compete with these Democratic incumbents. There are very strong fundraisers so far in New Jersey. Gottheimer, Cheryl, Malinowski, Kim, even Jeff Van Drew has $2 million in the bank, which is more than Amy Kennedy. Um, and that's why we still have that race as lean Republican, even though the DCCC internal had it moving uh, to a toss-up. Another thing we did in o- was uh, Oklahoma 5. We moved it from lean Republican to toss-up. At this point, we don't have any incumbents rated in the, uh, the uh, lean. Uh, we don't have any incumbents rated in the opposite party column. So there are no Republican incumbents in the lean D column, no Democratic incumbents in the lean R column. We just feel that even though Trump's likely to win Oklahoma County, even well being down by this much, 
that his margin could be small enough for potentially Kendra Horn to hold on narrowly if there are enough Trump Horn voters, which is a possibility, but it's going to be difficult mm -hmm. still. We just didn't want to counter out too early looking at that. Uh, we also changed our rating in Indiana 5. It's actually a seat that was one of the few seats in Indiana that trended towards Democrat Joe Donnelly, even as he lost re-election to his Senate seat back in 2018. And it's another suburban seat north of Indianapolis that is trending towards the Democrats long term. Uh, the seat is, uh, yeah, you can mention something if you want to talk about uh, Indiana 5, Eric, but we moved it to a toss up because it's looking good for uh, Democrats, at least better than it was last cycle being an open seat. And the candidates are State Senator Victoria Sparts and Democrat Christina Hale. We view it as a close race. Sabato's crystal ball also moved it to a toss-up. So now we're going to have uh, Eric add a brief word on this seat, and then we're going to finish mm -hmm. up the rest of our House ratings. Yep. So yeah. the reason I want to mention this real quick is that Hamilton County is the is kind of the main outside of um, outside of the portion in Marion. Hamilton County is a suburban county, and it's the reason this district has moved to the left. It's actually the only county in the entire state that has moved to the left from 2008 to 2016. Um, that was obviously an election that Obama won, won in the state in 2008, and then one that that uh, Hillary Clinton lost by a substantial margin in 2016. So to see it shift even narrowly to the Democratic Party over that period gives you an idea of the forces that are going on in that county. Um, the Republican in that seat is also kind of a very uh, is a very Trumpish candidate in a district that's really not um, ideal for that sort of um, brand of politics. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Pennsylvania's 10th district is another example where you have Scott Perry, who could be considered a little bit too conservative for the seat. Uh, and he's in a toss up race against Auditor Eugene de Pasquale. So that's going to be interesting. But going back to our ratings, speaking of Pennsylvania, we actually moved the first district, which makes up Bucks County, suburbs of Philadelphia, from likely back to lean. Fitzpatrick's still a clear favorite, a lot, along with John Katko. They're both uh, Northeastern Republicans who managed to survive 2018 in Clinton districts. But we viewed likely as a bit too big uh, given Biden's leads in Pennsylvania and the uh, uh, fact that voters are less likely to split tickets on the uh, federal level. So that's going to be a bit tougher for Fitzpatrick. We also moved Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan's 8th district to likely Democratic. Uh, this is another seat where Republicans have had a recruitment gap. Uh, and there's a lot of takes that Republicans are saving their good candidates for 2020. 2022 with the impression that it will be a Biden midterm and will therefore be favorable for Republicans where they could take back the House with redistricting. But fundraising there and the Slotkin as a strong incumbent has moved that seat to the same rating as Haley Stevens in the neighboring Michigan 11. Uh, Mike Garcia, we moved that race to a toss up again, similar to Pennsylvania one. He is a strong incumbent, but with Biden up this much, uh, it's going to be difficult for there to be that many split ticket voters. Uh, and we also had a bunch of changes in Texas following the crystal ball. We moved to Texas 3, 6, and 25, all Republican seats from safe to likely Republican. Uh, they're still heavily favored to go Republican. All likely means is that there's not a 100% chance, so the race could be somewhat close. But the, those seats are still heavily favored to remain Republican. Those are Roger Williams, Ron Wright, and Van Taylor seats. Um, and then in the 24th district, where you've got a race between Beth Vendon and Candace Valenzuela, we moved it to a toss-up, and in the 10th, where Michael McCall is running for re-election against Mike Siegel, we moved that to a toss-up as well. So Texas is going to be a big battleground. We've got a lot of competitive races there this time. Um, in addition, we also moved New Hampshire's first to likely Democratic. That's Chris Pappas' seat. 
Uh, again, a recruitment gap, uh, even though the seat leans Democratic and was actually narrowly carried by Trump, Pappas is likely to win re-election. In Alaska's at-large district, we moved the seat to lean Republican following that positive public policy poll for Democrats. Elise Galvin had a, a close race last time. We expect Don Young to win, but it is going to be somewhat competitive. And Chaz uh, moved it in his new CN analysis uh, work. He moved it to lean Republican as well. In Kansas, too, we moved the seat from likely Republican to lean Republican because Steve Watkins has been involved in a voter fraud scandal recently and stands a chance of losing his primary to um, Jake LaTurner, Kansas' state auditor. That primary is in one week, I believe. Uh, but that's going to be one we're following for sure. Now, Paul Davis was a good candidate, and he lost the seat to Watkins in an upset last time around. So we do not view Michelle de Isla of having a good shot at winning the seat, even though there was a new poll out today that looked really grim for Watkins. Even with Watkins as the nominee, it's going to be really tough to see a Democrat winning the seat if a Democrat as good as Paul Davis couldn't win the seat. But at this point, Watkins stands a very good chance of losing his primary to Turner, which would uh, shore up the seat. And, and last but not least, North Carolina's 8th District, uh, Richard Hudson's seat. We moved it to lean Republican. Uh, Timmons Goodson, uh, in the eyes of some, I know not necessarily Eric, has been seen as a good candidate. But we're going to have Eric talk about it. I would not feel comfortable moving it past lean, but I feel like it's in between lean and likely, so I decided to make the change. So Eric's going to talk about it real quick, and we're going to wrap up our cycle on race ratings. Yeah. So the big fundamental to look at in this district is it's very similar to NC9 and that it's a, it's a shift between a suburban portion of uh, Western North Carolina and an urban portion of Eastern North Carolina. So it's buoyed on one side by Cabarrus County, which is home to Concord, one of the larger cities in the state. It's a Republican leaning County, but it's trended democratic to a degree in recent years. And there's the presence of several controversial uh, Republican incumbents within the County legislature um, that have spe specific problems, namely Larry Pittman, who has been involved in a, a series of controversial remarks that have rendered him competitive in a district that he really shouldn't be in trouble in. On the other end of the district is Cumberland County, home to Fayetteville um, in Fort Bragg. It's a Democratic-leaning county. It's a majority-minority county. has a large Black population, um, in addition to the military base, um, which is the most Republican portion of the area. But it, it's a Democratic-leaning county and cast a large portion of the votes. So Republicans hope to win the seat, obviously, by winning, um, hoping the turnout in the in the rest of the district beyond Cumberland would be enough to overcome the Democratic advantage there. But with a with a relatively decent Democratic candidate who was an African-American woman, um, one of the first African-American women appointed to the court in North Carolina, if I recall right, um, the idea is that she could be uh, positioned to overcome some of that advantage combined with Republican slippage in the East. Or what? Yeah, the West. Sorry, in the Cabarrus mm -hmm. County edge. Well, it's certainly going to be interesting to look at. Um, thank you, Eric. Uh, for our viewers, Eric's going to be coming back for our last segment to talk about the uh, 2020 presidential race in detail and make some predictions. But for now, Eric's going to be heading off as we move on to our next segment. So thank you to Eric Cunningham for coming on, and we'll see him again later in the show. Yep. See ya. All right, guys, so we're going to be moving on now to our next segment, and it's an update on the coronavirus, which has um, ravaged the United States as a uh, deadly pandemic now for quite some time since the beginning of this year. So we've got a case update here based on the latest CDC numbers. Uh, the map you see on the right is the coronavirus cases reported to the CDC in the last seven days. That's not total cases. Uh, this basically shows you the uptick in cases and where we're seeing the most cases. 
Uh, a lot of them are coming in states that reopen too early now in the South, such as Florida, Georgia, Texas, Arizona, and to some extent, California as well. All of these states um, were either lenient on measures relating to social distancing and mask wearing, or in the case of California, you had people ignoring uh, Governor Newsom's orders there. But all states now are trying to address the problems that they've had, because so far, those five states have been relatively unsuccessful in uh, limiting the spread of coronavirus. And uh, you've got Governor Gavin Newsom in California, who's now trying to make up for his failings up to this point. And you've also got Doug Ducey in Arizona, who's trying to quell the state's large uptick in coronavirus cases in Phoenix. They were running out of morgue space uh, because of excessive death rates in Phoenix, which is uh, quite shocking to people in other states. Uh, in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott uh, admitted that he reopened the state too early and he's pushed to uh, make up for the problems that his policies caused earlier. He's closed down bars and restaurants and he has instituted a mask order. Uh, it's important to note that these states are also popular tourist destinations, so it's difficult sometimes to control coronavirus, especially among the younger population, uh, while it spreads. Um, in Georgia, Governor Kemp sued Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms for trying to implement a mask order there, even as other states in the South, like Arkansas and Alabama, have implemented mask orders. As far as I know, Georgia on the state level has not implemented one, and people have criticized Governor Kemp for uh, being hostile to Atlanta policy on mask issues. Uh, and in Florida, with Governor Ron DeSantis, um, following Florida's large uptick in cases, Ron DeSantis certainly recognizes that there is a problem and uh, Governor DeSantis is working to find a solution to that, but he has been heavily criticized by governors around the country and by um, certain members of uh, both political parties around the country. I mean, mainly people in the media have criticized DeSantis and Newsom, if you're looking at two governors from both parties, for responses to the coronavirus that haven't been seen as adequate. And most of them are simply like this because they're tourist destinations with large young populations and they reopen too early. So uh, another thing to note is the North, northern states like New Jersey and New York, uh, they started off as the epidemic, essentially the center of this coronavirus pandemic. But overall, their leadership has seemingly been successful. Uh, not to brag about my state, but Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey has managed to contain the virus. We're one of the few states that has had a continuous decline in rates of infection and coronavirus over the last 90 days. Um, and New York has been, some have on the right have criticized Governor Cuomo of New York for his nursing home policy, similar to the people on the left criticizing DeSantis for being too nonchalant about mask wearing and social distancing. Uh, but New York as well, regardless of what you think about Governor Cuomo, has also been on the downslope in terms of coronavirus cases. So those two states have tried to set themselves as an example for what the nation should be. And obviously in uh, Upper New England and some of the more sparsely populated Western states, there are fewer coronavirus cases because the population is less dense, there are less tourists. There, I mean, with a lower population, it's natural to assume that coronavirus can't spread as quickly as it can in densely populated cities and some of these uh, tourist attractions in some of the Southern and Sunbelt states and major cities in New Jersey and New York, like Newark, New York, Camden, et cetera. Um, but but looking at the map, it's certainly a problem, and it begs the question, one of the big coronavirus debates has been whether or not we should reopen schools this November, and that goes for all levels. If it's a college, most of them, if they're private colleges, that's going to be up to them to determine whether or not they want to reopen their schools. 
Uh, I know a lot of parents are pressuring colleges to reopen because they don't believe it's just that they should pay for room and board, but not have uh, in-person education. There have been a lot of criticisms of digital classes in college. And um, uh, in addition to that, we've got public schooling, which is bearing the brunt of this. Uh, public schools have been criticized for their uh, digital learning programs up to this point. And uh, especially for kids on the younger end of the spectrum, elementary and middle school kids, their distance learning has not been as adequate as high school distance learning in some states, uh, simply because it's harder when, you know, in high school, more kids learn the curriculums on their own. The classes are more up to you, kind of closer to what a college class would be like. But in elementary and middle school, you know, those kids typically rely on uh, full on interaction with their teachers and they're learning some of the foundational stuff that's important to learn to get into high school. So particularly some of the younger kids, there's been a big push to reopen elementary schools. I mean, schools on all levels, but some of those foundational things you learn in your early years are critical to your to, be, to being able to teach yourself some of the key concepts in college and high school later on. So that's been a big thing. Uh, another thing, in underprivileged communities, sometimes kids rely on school lunches and if schools aren't open and their parents have to go back to work, it's sometimes going to be difficult for them potentially to get food. Another thing with distance learning is only the most affluent school districts provide computers for their kids or the kids in those districts have computers. So distance learning, again, it can be tough. In a lot of these cases, in a lot of these cities, uh, with where technological access was not fully up to date or fully open to everyone, it was difficult for these people to uh, learn successfully in a distance environment. So it's going to be really uh, difficult for schools to justify closing again, uh, which is why many of them are probably going to end up pursuing a limited reopening plan. Uh, and basically to go over a limited reopening plan, you would have schools uh, stagger their students. You could have different grades come in on different days. You could have different times, staggered drop-off times for buses and parking. If we're talking about public schools, that's how it would have to be because many of these high schools are, are too crowded. There are too many students for them to be attending class at the same time every day. So if there is going to be a reopening of schools, it's probably going to be a compromise uh, between a full reopening and no reopening at all. And that compromise will come in the form most likely of staggered schedules. So certain students will balance distance learning with in-person learning. There will be a mass requirement. There will be uh, differences in terms of how students eat lunch the proximity in which they sit, the size of classrooms, which classrooms are used. It's going to be a logistical nightmare for schools, but parents are definitely pressuring them to pull it off in some way. And uh, I think that people are pretty open. I mean, there are already sports rehearsals, musical rehearsals happening, uh, at least where, where I live in a limited fashion like that, where you have people wearing masks coming in at different times, there's social distancing staggering, and it's working. People are talking, people are socializing, but in a safe way. And most of all, people are learning. And I feel like that's going to be the rationale for school on all levels this fall, especially in college uh, and in public schools as well. And zip codes where property taxes are very high because that's essentially like a payment for your child's education. And a lot of parents are going to want it to reopen so that they can see results again, because it's it's difficult for the American for American people just to by nature to stay confined to this stuff for a long period of time. But uh, one thing that's definitely going to be certain, I think most people can understand, is social distancing and mask wearing. So even if there is partial reopening, it's certainly going to be uh, different than we'd normally expect school to be. Uh, but two leading voices, uh, in fact, two leading opponents so far on the school reopening issue for this fall um, have been Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, and uh, Anthony Fauci, who has been the head of the 
Disease National Institute since 1984 and has been a leading figure uh, on addressing the coronavirus. Um, uh, Betsy DeVos had an interview on CNN with Dana Bash the other day where she was talking about reopening schools and basically pointing out that it was critical that schools had to be reopened. Now, there has been criticism from the left about Betsy DeVos being unqualified to be Secretary of Education, and um, some of those claims are legitimate, but they don't have to do with the overarching argument of opening schools. Uh, DeVos argued that it would be critical to open schools in the interview for the sake of children learning, and she also pointed out that schools are sometimes critical to students in underprivileged communities where their parents cannot always provide for them public schools, but Betsy DeVos has also been a big advocate for school choice, which is a policy that has been pushed by Republicans in recent years, um, heavily opposed by teachers, unions, public schools, and most Democrats. Um, and, and even within the media, some on the conservative right have questions about how successful school choice would be. But DeVos is definitely pushing for a reopening, and she's talked about dealing with coronavirus cases on a case-by-case -case basis and looking at how schools can reopen uh, to the safest degree. Fauci, on the other hand, has... has um, had somewhat similar beliefs. I mean, Fauci has, has stated that uh, opening schools will likely lead to an increase in coronavirus. And uh, that's probably true. Most public activities do. But there have also been criticisms of Fauci's remarks by people that have pointed out that if people are social distancing, mask wearing, and schools are following a limited reopening uh, system where only certain blocks of students come in on certain days, that it would be fairly safe. Um, and we don't know, we don't yet know because the first schools don't go back for another month, uh, and most schools in the Northeast not for another two months. So we don't have the data to prove which of their uh, competing visions is actually going to be correct in terms of schools. But Fauci has talked a little bit about potentially opening schools on that limited reopening schedule I've talked about, but he's certainly been much more hesitant than Betsy DeVos out of worries that it would be hard to ensure that schools follow the CDC guidelines. Um, it's possible, but that's certainly going to be strict. And if schools reopen, uh, there are going to have to be some plans for how we're going to meet the CDC guidelines. But you've got people on both ends. You've got parents and students who want to see, see people again who want to go back to school, but they know uh, and understand, like what Fauci is saying, that following the CDC guidelines is going to be critical to ensuring safety in schools this fall. So that's our update on the coronavirus for you all. Uh, whether or not you agree that schools should reopen or not, that's up to you. But we hope we provided you with some facts about the coronavirus in different states so far and how it's impacting school going into this fall. So we're going to have a quick break for one minute, and we will be back in one to two minutes following our commercial break. Please stay with us for our next two segments. We're going to talk about the replacement in Congress for the late John Lewis, and we're also going to talk about the 2020 presidential race at the end when Eric Cunningham comes back. So we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to Elections Daily and uh, the report, the show covering news from an objective perspective for Elections Daily. So we're going to move on to our second half of the show now. We're going to have two segments. One of them is going to focus on John Lewis, who passed away uh, a few days ago, particularly talking about his life and legacy, as well as his replacement in Congress, which has been announced by the Atlanta or by the Georgia Democratic Party today. Uh, in addition to that, we're also going to have a segment with Eric Cunningham coming back, and we're going to talk about polling in the state of the presidential race and how this race can be related to past presidential races for our nation's highest office. So first off, Elections Daily is remembering the life of John Lewis, congressman from Georgia's 5th District, who passed away last week or uh, this weekend at the age of 80. 
Uh, Lewis was known throughout his life for being a strong advocate for civil rights, and he was one of the people who spearheaded the civil rights movement in the 1960s. He organized the Freedom Rides, spoke at the 1963 March on Washington, and led the 1965 March across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Alabama. So those are some of his major accomplishments. And in Congress, he served from 1987 to 2020, and he always fought for his beliefs. He always fought, his beliefs were often very poignant and always uh, had a goal of making the country a better place. He was generally regarded as a very, very kind person, and many tributes have poured in remembering John Lewis and everything he did for the country. Um, the Atlanta Democratic, uh, the Georgia Democratic Party has announced a replacement on the November ballot this year for John Lewis in the 5th District. They have selected State Senator Nakima Williams, who also is the chair of the Democratic Party there. Uh, she has been selected following a vetting process to replace Congressman John Lewis on November's ballot. The seat is strongly Democratic and has a high African-American population, and it is not competitive in the general election. Uh, the system originally looked unclear. People weren't sure if an interim replacement would be appointed and that person would resign shortly after. Uh, but one thing is certain, and that is Nakima Williams will replace John Lewis on the November ballot and could potentially end up being a congresswoman for this district for, for a long time. Um, the, there have also been many, including CNN, who have pointed out that she would be the first female African-American Democrat to represent Atlanta in Congress. Lucy McBath represents the 6th District, which is north of Atlanta's 5th District. But uh, Nakima Williams will be going to Congress uh, after the November election. Uh, whether or not there will be a special election, we don't yet have enough information at Elections Daily. Things are still being sorted out. Uh, but John Lewis was truly an influential person, and he will always be remembered as that, as a good person, as someone who always fought for social justice and elections daily, uh, remembers him by reporting this news about his successor, Nakima Williams. And now we're going to be using the last 15 minutes of our segment to talk about the presidential race. So we're going to welcome back Eric Cunningham, uh, and we're going to talk about the 2020 presidential race. So uh, welcome back, Eric. Uh, this segment's just going to be used to go over the presidential election up to this point. As you know, the presidential election is between President Donald Trump, who was elected in a controversial 2016 race where he lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College following narrow victories in key swing states, surprising most analysts. Uh, he is being challenged by the former Vice President Joe Biden, who passed on running in 2016 after his son, Beau Biden, unfortunately passed away from cancer. Uh, the campaign here has been very divisive, which can be expected given the fact that Trump redefined what is considered normal in a presidential campaign in his race against Hillary Clinton. Um, one thing to note is that Joe Biden has polled consistently further ahead of Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton did in 2016 at this time. And with the margin of errors removed from Biden's polling leads, he still remains ahead in the key swing states. Um, and to some extent, this can be due to the fact that the Trump is now being viewed as inept when it comes to handling the coronavirus. And Joe Biden is coming close in opinion polling to taking over President Trump in terms of whom voters view can better handle America's economy, which is always a critical part of our nation's elections. So uh, at the moment, Joe Biden is a strong favorite to win, much stronger than Hillary Clinton. And another thing uh, that could be seen when you look at that is simply the fact that Joe Biden is a lot more popular than Hillary Clinton. Voters did not like Hillary Clinton as much as they like Joe Biden. If you look at 
uh, favorability ratings. In fact, in 2016, going into the election, both Trump and Clinton were far in the negatives on their favorability ratings. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting thing. Can Biden win simply off of not being Clinton? How close will the race be? Will these polling leads hold? How will the economy and the coronavirus evolve? So we've got Eric here to talk about this race and to talk about potential veep stakes for Joe Biden as well going forward. So uh, welcome, Eric. Can you just give us a little bit of your take so far on the presidential campaign up to this point? Definitely. Um, I think, if you look at this from the Republican, um, sorry, I'm going to have an audio thing. Um, so part of the thing, um, the presidential election at the moment, I think it could not have gone really a lot worse for President Trump if you look at kind of where he's at. Specifically, the opinion polling on the economy has to be concerning if you're a Republican or if you're involved in Republican politics. This is an area that Republicans typically have a fairly strong advantage in. Uh, Republicans often trail in the environment and in healthcare, um, protecting Social Security and Medicare, but they usually have a pretty substantial lead in the economy. Um, Trump even had this advantage until recently, but it started to dwindle away, which is, um, for a Republican, not ideal. So if he's going to want to recover from this polling, which at the moment shows him trailing anywhere from between 8 to 15 percentage points, I believe most have him around 8 to 10 percentage points, um, he's going to need to um, he's going to need to get back that advantage on the economy. Um, they, have an, they have an opportunity to do this this week. Um, there's going to be coronavirus um, uh, legislation, the phase four relief um, is being negotiated. Uh, Trump has been a pretty big advocate for a payroll tax cut, but that doesn't appear to be going through. But regardless, this needs to be done fairly quickly um, before unemployment benefits start to expire, before you have a lot of issues um, that could make his campaign in even a worse position at the moment. I think he also made a good decision by shuffling up his campaign team. Uh, Brad Parscale um, had some interesting priorities as as the uh, as the campaign uh, the the chief campaign operator for the Trump campaign. Um, he was specifically interested in states like Oregon or New Mexico, which didn't really seem to be what you would be wanting to go for in a competitive race. Those are states you would be looking for if Trump had a five to 10 percentage point lead. Um, but at the moment, um, that didn't seem that wise. And Republicans, since Pascal has been demoted, um, they have abandoned kind of looking at New Mexico in particular. So what I'm kind of looking for is to see, one, how he improves on the economy uh, rating. If that continues to go down, that's not a good sign for Republicans at all. Another thing is he needs to have a more focused line of, um, of what he's wanting to do in his next term. Um, voters are very clear at this point what he wanted to do in 2016. He wanted to make America great again. And whoever you were, you knew pretty much exactly what that meant, what he wanted to do, what positions he had. Um, he hasn't delivered to a lot of people a clear and compelling vision for what he would do differently or what he would change or what he would be doing specifically in his next term. So it would, I think in my opinion, it would be – uh, well advised for him to um, be a little bit clearer as to his motivations, what he's really planning on focusing on as if he were to get a second term in office. Yeah, I think those are all good points. And, um, you know, at one point Trump was uh, running, attacking Democrats like Joe Biden, even though Joe Biden uh, firmly stated that he does not support abolishing the police like some of mm -hmm. the far left protesters that had been protesting were, but with these riots and the looting relatively died down again, voters have a chance to focus back on criticizing Trump on the coronavirus response and his uh, reluctance to, to uh, put in place a national mask order. So uh, what impact on the election and on Trump's attack on Biden do you think um, 
with the looting gone, what impact would you say that has on Trump's line of attack against Biden? Because right now he's just resorting to attacking Biden for his age and uh, perceived lack of mental ability, which has been technically disproven. Uh, what's your What's your opinion on that? Mm-hmm. So I think a good case study comparison is the 1996 election. Um, Bob Dole made a big focus of the campaign actually in reverse. He was the original OK Boomer. Um, Bob Dole made a big focus of his campaign that Bill Clinton was a boomer and that he didn't like some of that he was young. He didn't like that he was a little bit less uh, disciplined in some areas than other candidates. Uh, and he lost pretty resoundingly. That wasn't a very effective line of attack. Um, Trump is doing the exact opposite at the moment. He's going after Biden in the position that he's old. Um, and given his showing among senior voters, that doesn't seem to be a particularly effective line of attack. On the police, um, Trump has had kind of a difficult time scoring a circle here, which is that originally he ran attack ads criticizing Joe Biden for signing the crime bill, for supporting that in the Senate in the 1990s. This could have been a very effective line of attack. Um, Trump for a while was going heavily towards criminal justice reform. He had kind of made this an issue. And that was um, a big accomplishment during his term. The, uh, mm-hmm. the the criminal justice reform bill was a bipartisan mm-hmm. thing. And in a way, it was probably yep. one of Trump's most successful moments. Yep. First step, it was pretty much agreed upon by most, except all but the, I, I know Tom Cotton had some issues with it, but most Republicans were, were pretty well on board with it. And he had gotten some support from some indi- individuals like Van Jones, uh, who back during the Obama administration, if you recall, was uh, his candidacy for a position as a, I believe a czar in the Obama administration was tanked in response to conservatives who were criticizing him for being too far to the left. So he was getting some genuine bipartisan um, across the political spectrum support. Since the, since the uh, protest and rioting that has taken out and more recently some of the actions in Portland, which um, I think I don't want to be a little bit too unclear as to what they are. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there that just uh, beyond the scope, I think that it could be an entire episode in and of itself. Um, but consider basically at that point, he can't go on Biden for being too soft on the police and at the same time being, um, too supportive of the police. Right. So saying he signed the crime bill and the crime bill was bad when that was generally considered to be over policing now, while also criticizing him for wanting to under police now, that's a pretty difficult circle to square in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's a little bit unclear as to which one he's more interested in. Or whether he's just more interested in going after Biden on this issue. He could go after him for flip-flopping. That's always an effective campaign position to take. And it's a reason that uh, jo- George Bush was able to do so well against John Kerry. He effectively positioned him as a candidate who who changed exactly. his position yeah. on a number of issues. Mm-hmm. It's always something you can go on. Um, but instead, he's going after these two at the same time, as in both of them being bad. When that the, I, I don't know that's a, that's a consistent position or a position voters would really fine to be consistent. Mm-hmm. And one thing that uh, Republicans, particularly Donald Trump, have brought up is that Trump would be able to get at least a tiny bump in the polls to make the race more competitive if there were debates where he could stand a chance of mm-hmm. using his typical, um, you know, very inspiring rhetoric, at least inspiring towards conservatives, uh, even though mm-hmm. he may not reference exact policy there to just point out that Biden may not be as fit to serve as he was. So that's just, that's a just to be uh, bipartisan here, that's an argument that a lot of conservatives have have used. And I know you are a conservative, so I'm not sure what you think about about that line of attack that Joe Biden would uh, fail tremendously in the debates. And do you even think that the debates are going to happen given coronavirus? Where would they be held? Uh, just I want to hear your opinion briefly on that. Mm-hmm. 
part of it, I think Joe Biden at the moment is in a very good position where he's able to run a pretty effective campaign without having to do a whole lot. He can do a couple of television appearances. He can promote vice presidential speculation, but he doesn't have to actively do a lot. And when you're up by 15 points, uh, to be fair, you don't really have to campaign a whole lot. Um, if there are to be debates, and I imagine there would be, I don't, I don't think there's a situation where uh, both, where, where I mean, that'd be unprecedented in modern times. You could easily do something over over a radio or over Zoom or over some sort of um, opportunity. Uh, that would be a genuine opportunity for Trump to go after. Although I will note that Joe um, Joe Biden had debates in both 2008 and 2012 um, against Republican Vice Presidential nominee Sarah Palin, who was generally considered to be a relatively mm-hmm. subpar Vice Presidential yeah. nominee. And Paul Ryan, who is, you can say many things about Paul Ryan, but he's not a bad speaker. He's not, um, he's not bad in a debate. And he managed to hold his ground in both of these debates. Yeah. I don't think mm-hmm. he was, uh, it, like you had a similar thing. And so he's not someone who, who can't perform well in a debate. And, and even the in the Democratic debate, yeah. primary debates, he was able to hold his own mm-hmm. in terms of uh, not being dumbfounded or left, left in awe. Biden was very much there and, and in control mm-hmm. in those Democratic primary debates, yeah. which kind of goes against some of the rhetoric we've seen. Another thing that typically plays a big role in polling in presidential races are the convention boosts that candidates get after mm-hmm. their conventions. And just like debates, conventions are kind of in jeopardy due to coronavirus. The uh, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper made the Republicans remove their convention, as you now know, but now it looks like mm-hmm. it could be in jeopardy again. Uh, the Democratic convention, they're still keen on hosting that in Milwaukee, but it's unclear whether Tony Evers' uh, guidelines will allow that to happen in terms of him being governor there. So if conventions happen, how big of a role do you think they'll play? Do you think they would end up being socially distanced, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Frankly, I'm not exactly sure why Trump hasn't considered or why either candidate hasn't considered going to some sort of digital event. Um Obviously, the majority of people who attend a convention or who look at the convention already do so on television or online. Um, You could easily perform such a convention with numerous speakers, in fact, more speakers than you could probably have at the convention itself through a digital event of some sorts. Um, But of course, the -the on-the-ground thing is big for Trump. He loves having the energy of a rally, and he also loves getting information from people who go to the rally so we can follow up with them with text messages or emails. It's yeah. a pretty effective digital marketing operation. I, that's my day job is digital marketing, and he's genuinely mm-hmm. very good at doing that. Um, it's 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 been a genuine opportunity, um, you know, thing he's been fairly successful at doing. Um, if if these things are to happen, I'm not sure. Usually, these function as kind of red meat towards base supporters, right? Yeah, they um, rally up the base and they boost candidates mm-hmm. in polling. Uh, yeah, but, but usually in the history of presidential elections, after conventions that particular candidate rises a tiny bit in their press. Correct. Probably from a consolidation of some sort of support or from new energy from people. Um, The problem is Trump has been putting out red meat pretty much for the entirety of the last few months. Um, His supporters are probably already energized to some degree um, or similar. I think it may be more effective for him to use that energy to try and convince people to vote by mail. Um, We're seeing considerable um, voter gap Mm -hmm. in terms of Republicans and Democrats willing to vote by mail. Um, these are like, yeah. I'm just looking at this from someone who's trying to judge the campaign fairly and effectively. And there are reasons Trump is down by 15 points that go beyond or eight to 15 points that go beyond whether or not you like Trump or not. Um, mm-hmm. There have been genuine issues and he has an opportunity to correct them. Uh, there are several months left in the election. Granted, there, you know, it's, it's, voting is going to start a little bit earlier and these votes cast earlier may have more of it, yeah. uh, more of a say this time, given the the amount of people who will vote by mail. But there's still time. Anything can happen in a few months. 
and an effective mm-hmm. operation by his team could make this more competitive, which would ultimately be, even if it couldn't salvage his race, it could still salvage down ballot mm-hmm. Republicans. Yeah, looking at his new campaign manager, Bill Stipian, it's unclear, but uh, I mean, there is a possibility that, that he could run the campaign mm-hmm. a little bit more effectively. And, you know, if they get their priorities sorted out slightly, highly unlikely that, that he ever becomes the favorite over Biden, very unlikely at this point, but he could tighten up the race. And uh, mm-hmm. obviously, if debates or conventions happen, Trump would argue that those would benefit his cause, but Biden would also argue they would benefit his campaign. Uh Real quick, just uh, two more things to touch on. First off is Biden's running mate selection. Uh, we know it's likely to be a minority woman at this point. Uh, there has been a lot of speculation that it would be Kamala Harris, the senator from California. There have even been some saying that it would be Congresswoman Val Demings, who is the former Orlando County mm-hmm. Sheriff's, uh, Orlando uh, Sheriff. So uh, I'm curious to see what you think about who the running mate is going to be. This is just a brief little thing. In your opinion, who do you think mm-hmm. uh, Biden's vice presidential selection is going to be this cycle and what would they bring to the ticket? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if some, if, if you had seen this earlier today, but there was a list of, I believe, five nominees that had reportedly been narrowed down to. One of yeah. which was supposedly Tammy Duckworth, who had actually ruled herself out early on. Um, if she's actually being considered, I think she would be the prohibitive favorite and she would be the candidate who could bring the most to his ticket. Um I think part of that is because she has, I've been a skeptic early on of whether or not she'd be a good addition, but she actually has some credentials that could specifically right now benefit the Biden ticket and shore up some of the image of being weak on patriotic issues, right? Yeah, She served her country. She served her country honorably, lost both of her legs. Um, She's, I mean, she's, I mean, she's well known to be a, a fan of uh, regardless of what people say she's known to be appreciative of the american revolution at minimum i mean she named her daughter after abigail adams uh you don't really do that if you don't respect some of the early figures in american history regardless of what people wanted to say about her comments about reconsidering things i think she brings a, a specific advantage to his campaign mm-hmm. in addition to being a, a woman being a person of color being a lot of the different advantages being fairly moderate she's not known as a as a firebrand um, she's someone who could theoretically yeah. appeal to security voters, some of those security Republicans who just want um, want assurances that, Repu- that you know, the foreign policy is going to be competent um, and then mm-hmm. should be focused on the sort of things they're familiar with and interested in. Yeah, I mean, even looking at that, um, the fact that Tammy Duckworth is someone who has sacrificed a lot for her country, but is still willing to reconsider some parts of our history while honoring a lot of our history is kind of in line with a lot of younger voters and voters who are probably going to make up the future of the electorate. You know, a lot of voters are open to taking down some of these statues in the future, uh, especially mm-hmm. Confederate statues, because they don't represent them um, or their history. But at the same time, you have a lot of opponents of that. I mean, she was attacked uh, pretty brutally on Tucker Carlson's show for criticizing historical figures. So it's going to be interesting mm-hmm. to see. Uh, one final thing that I want to talk about with you is the election itself. I mean, given the fact that, that it'll be conducted mostly by mail uh, during coronavirus and that most Republicans want to vote in person, is there a possibility that Trump can be leading on election night by a significant margin, but as the mail-in ballots are counted, that Biden will come back and take the lead? Uh, how long will the election be in limbo and this could, how chaotic could this end up being, uh, in your personal opinion, to our uh, democratic system? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's absolutely possible. And I think... Um... I'm kind of a pessimist as to the results of the election in terms of um, of both sides respecting the outcome. Um, there have been a lot of not just not just Trump, uh, not just in 2000, but also in 2004, 2008. We've had people accusing of voter fraud to some degree, serious people, people who are in office. In most presidential elections in the last 
20 years. The problem is that this could be fuel to the fire if this were to happen right now. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen states like Texas being able to get their votes in very quickly. But if this is a, if this is a Florida situation where the state where the state of the country relies on or state of the election, I should say, relies on one state and then the votes start changing overnight, regardless of whether or not you regardless of whether or not it's legitimate, that does create an image for some people. And the image may be more uh, maybe will, they may be willing to look over the the facts of the situation for the image. Right. You're seeing in New York, the 27th congressional special election. Uh, the Republican candidate strongly led on election night, um, an enormous lead that seemed, um, you know, yeah, it was very um, big. Yeah, and then it dropped to around eight percentage points. Like he was up by thirty points or so, and it dropped over twenty percentage points because of those late ballots. Um, I think, in my opinion, um, I think other people mentioned this. There needs to be some sort of system of, you know, to ensure voters, for example, maybe require the mail-ins to be submitted by a certain time or require them to be counted or maybe delay counting entirely until, you know, you have all the votes in. Those are normally actions that wouldn't be considered, but they may have to be because I think the the democratic integrity of the system is the most important thing. If you're looking at one of these elections, it's important that the election results, not just the results isn't fair, but also the appearance of it is fair, that it's transparent, that it's open. Um, And I believe um, several people on our election team, like a Jenya Coulter, would say the same thing if you listen to the, the special we did a while back um, where we discussed this mm-hmm. issue as well. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to look at. We've still got quite a few months. You know, the state of the range race could mm-hmm. change or at least tighten slightly, or it could get even bigger. We don't know. We don't have the data for that. But we hope we've provided you with multiple different perspectives from both sides, looking at the Trump line of attack, the Biden line of attack, and uh, what the data show right now in terms of the outcome of the race. So. Thank you to our viewers and thank you to Eric Cunningham for coming on twice during this show. Uh, Thank you to to all who watched the first episode of the report and hopefully we can make this a weekly thing. We're scheduled to have our next episode next Monday at seven. So we hope you check it out. Uh, Thank you again. Also a quick uh, shout out to John Santucci who wrote the music for this. It's very good music. uh, And we're going to be using it now for all of our new elections daily streams. He's also working on music for breaking news and music for projections that we're going to use for our election coverage going forward. So thank you to him for taking the time to do that. And uh, thank you to Eric Cunningham and thank you to our viewers. So we're going to be heading off now. Have a great night. And uh, regardless of what perspective you are on political issues, we hope you found some insightful information here that you can agree or disagree with. So have a good night, everyone. And um, goodbye.